Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's the interview that I thought would never get off the ground, but against all odds, we're here today. Daisy Richardson, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's been a bit of time in the works. There's been a, a bit of back and forth, times changing. Um, it's all thanks to the, uh, the coronavirus. It's making us all lose our minds, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's just, um, it's been such a crazy time at the moment that you are either so busy or so free. There's just no in-between. And even when you're free, I've found that, like, I've never been more busy in my free time. Like, I'll be, I'll be there and I'm like, I know I'm not doing anything but I swear I don't have time for anything else. I, I agree. I wake up and I write a job list for myself just to keep myself occupied and then I still get to the end of my days and haven't completed that job list. It's crazy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, um, Daisy, since Survivor finished up recently uh, and the Golden God claimed his 500K, I think we've all heard the same things be said in interviews. We know who the best game players were. Um, we know all about the alliances and all that sort of stuff. What I want to do today is get to the bottom of some of the stuff that hasn't already been covered and we'll just roll from there. Yeah, sounds good. So first off, um, we obviously as fans of the show, we see the end product with each episode. Um, we get the best bits, I guess, of the challenges, the tribals, all the gossip. But outside of that, what are you guys actually doing that doesn't make the cut? Like, do you just sit on the beach and talk shit all day? How do you keep yourself busy? Um, it's a, it's a funny one because when those episodes are cut and edited, you've got to remember that that hour or an hour and a half, depending on, on which episode it is, comes from either 48 hours or 72 hours of filming. So there is a camera there 24 seven when you're sleeping, when you're eating, whatever you're doing. So what, what the viewers do see is a very small snippet. Um, what you've also got to remember is we're on an 800 calorie a day diet. So we're, we're eating rice and beans. So we don't have a ton of energy to be gallivanting around and having a lot of fun. So there is a lot of sitting around and I'm not going to lie about that because you are just so exhausted. But yes, we do talk a lot of shit. Um, <laughs> I found in season four, I at one point found myself on a tribe. I think it was me and six boys just before merge. And all they talked about was food. It was so frustrating because it was just, it was torture for themselves. I don't know why they continued to just slap themselves over the head with something they just couldn't have. So there's a lot of talk about food. Um, and it's also a lot of get to know you's too, because you know, you do come away from these experiences and know people better than you've known people that you know your whole life. There's a study that's gone around that says it takes 40, 40 condensed hours to create an adult friendship or relationship. So if you think about that in the everyday world when you're working Monday to Friday, if you meet someone and try and become friends with them or start a relationship with them, tops you're probably seeing them maybe five hours a week casually and then maybe it builds up after that so it can take you know half a year to build up that relationship we are given that 40 hours with the first 40 hours we see each other so I think that is why Survivor is such a tight-knit family um, the other downside is is you'll have a conversation with someone but then that same story 
hasn't been told to everyone. So you hear a lot of the same shit over and over and over and over. And it could be the best story in the world, but once you've heard it 12 times, it has no spark anymore. Yeah. The 12th time you hear it, you're sort of just like, all right, mate, get some new material. Yeah. Well, it's new to the person they're telling telling it to. It's just not new to the people that are overhearing it. I've already heard it. Now, you did mention that you can develop a friendship pretty quickly because you are just spending so much time together. On the flip side of that, how hard is it to make genuine mates while you're thinking, is this person just going to stab me in the back tonight? Uh, Yeah, it is hard. It is hard. But I think most of the people I've played with across the two seasons can acknowledge that it is a game. I mean... I look at it, especially with season four with champions versus contenders, like Sean was one of my best mates in the world. But in at the end of the day, I wrote his name down on that parchment. And, you know, we can see past that because Survivor is a game. There are people that do take it a lot more personal than that. And, and that's their call. And, you know, everyone has the right to be affected how they want to be affected. But I just think what a grudge to bear. And I don't, I don't think it'd be worth carrying that around. Um, And also, like, Dave got me with the biggest blindside that Australian Survivor's ever seen, and I would call him a close friend. So I think you kind of need to rise above that. Um, Out there, definitely the paranoia is real, and you can get very snarky with people that are coming after you. But, again, that's the game. Yeah, 100%. And I I suppose the... uh... But I suppose the 800 calorie limit a day probably adds to some of that snarkiness. I mean, it's bad enough getting hangry when you're at home, but when you're on 800 calories a day doing challenges, trying to build up your camp and all that, I can imagine it would just be torture. Like someone would say something and you'd just be thinking, you seriously need to go in the bin. Yeah, for sure. I would snap so quickly. And that's the idea of Survivor is they push you into poverty. Like that, that is the closest you will get to poverty in a first world country is what they do to us because of you know the living conditions and absolutely there are so many times when you are sitting there holding your breath thinking shut up but there's it's you know the more you react the less popular you become so really it's self-detrimental and it's not a path you want to go down yeah I reckon in saying that I probably would have been out first night I I (laughs) I would have lasted a day and I would have snapped 100%. But everyone thinks they're going to be out first night. And, I mean, our first night in season four was one of the coldest nights I had on Survivor. And we had a shit shelter. We were with 12 or 11 other people we didn't know. And if you snap on that first night, that does guarantee that if you go to the first tribal council, you most likely will be the one to go. On that first night, was there a little bit of regret? With you thinking, oh, I've made the wrong decision here. This sucks. Not a win. Not no, a win. Not I'm, I'm an all or nothing kind of person. So I I don't, I believe in having regrets, but only so that you can learn from them. And I remember laying there thinking, oh, God, this sucks. But there's always, the sun will always rise on another day. And I think, you know, I'm I'm glad the way we did it because I let someone else take charge to build this have this idea to build this really poorly designed shelter and they then have to deal with the fallout of it not me it's it pays to not stick your neck out but unfortunately sometimes you just still have to suffer the consequences um now you obviously came into this all-star season 
having gone pretty deep into season four, as you said, was there any sort of pre-game playing chatter with some of your old alliance? Did you know who was going in? Like, was there any pre-survivor strategy going on? Oh, there definitely was. And I there's been a lot of talk about this in the media. And if you say that you didn't pre-game, you're a liar. Because a pre-game can can range from anything from reacting to someone's stories on Instagram to having phone calls with someone every night. Like Mm. there is so many levels of pregame and I've seen so much stuff about people saying, oh, you know, I was so honest, I didn't contact anyone. But that's just not the case. Like all of these people have played with people that are going in before. That's what happens when it's a returnee season. You may not have played with everyone, but there are going to be relationships there I mean Lydia and Sean did a trek I think a week before Survivor a five-day trek through the desert you know it's yeah don't tell me they were talking about Survivor yeah in five days, 100%. that's right and it's like you know I remember like everyone starts following each other on Instagram and sussing them out and you know if they put up a run it's like oh are they getting fit for all stars and <laughs> you know, commenting on people's photos saying, oh, I can't wait to meet you one day. Like it can be anything. And I I, I find it really frustrating when people say I didn't do an inch of pre-gaming because that's rubbish. That's rubbish. Yeah. It's impossible. It's impossible to not, to not do it in some way, shape or form, whether it be incidental or not. 100%. No, there's... Oh, that's what I thought. I thought there would have been some going on, but you, yeah, you see people coming out and saying, "Oh no, I didn't do that. I played such an honourable game," and I'm like, "That's rubbish. Come on, well, let's be real here." For sure. And I, I knew the five that were going in from my season. I knew that Abby was going in. I knew John was going in. I knew Harry was going in, and I knew Dave was going in. So, you know, my biggest stress before going into the game was those four people are based in Western Australia. So they they were catching up on the regular and seeing each other all the time. And I was feeling really left out of that. And I thought this is going to be a detriment to me when the time comes for me to play because mm. I'm not seeing them and I'm not having the conversations they're having in a group setting. So, yeah, I and what also I racked my brains about was that being a season of All-Stars after four seasons of Survivor, I thought it was going to be a 6-6-6-6 split across the four seasons. So Mm. in my head, I'm trying to rack my brain thinking, who is this sixth person from our season that hasn't come forward and hasn't said, hey, it's me? So I was having nightmares thinking Andy was going to show up and knock me out day one, um, which wasn't the case. It ended up being, I think it was a 5-7-7-5 split and and then it also depends on how tribes fall too I mean I got put on a tribe with Dave he was the only person from my season we saw how that ended I had a really close relationship with Henry who I planned on playing a very big game with who then ended up being put on the other tribe you know every I had not met a single soul on my tribe other than Dave when I sat down on that beach and the people from season one, two, and three have either had three, two, or one year to become part of this Survivor family because people yeah. do hang out and they do network and, you know, if they have Survivor catch-ups in every state every couple of months. So these people have 
been inducted or joined a family and us season fouries had only finished playing the game six weeks ago. So we hadn't been fully inducted into that family yet. Sounds like there's a bit of uh, a bit of us versus them mentality going on, a bit of the season four take on the rest. Is well, that what, is that it, what felt, it was like? It felt like that. I, well, that was my worry going in. But now watching the series and how it played out, I don't think that was the case. Um, season four weren't exactly a united bunch. Dave got rid of me. <laughs> Harry got rid of Abby and John. You know what I mean? Like other yeah. than Abby and John, none of us really stuck together anyway. So it couldn't really be an us versus them because there wasn't really an us. You didn't, yeah, you didn't do the us part of it very well. No, that's right. It sounds like going into um, the All Stars game, like even though you, for example, you weren't on the show for all that long, it sounds like you developed like pretty strong relationships with most of the people on there and. When when you hear that as a fan, you're like, oh, how could you have made mates that quickly? But as you say before, like spending so much time with each other, there's bound to be mateships that spring up. In saying that, is there like someone that you grew close with that you just didn't see before that you wouldn't have thought that you two would have been close? Uh, yeah, I definitely. And also like a, a lot of relationships keep developing after the game too. I really clicked with Phoebe, but it wasn't straight away. It wasn't until about day five and she's kind of my person now, if you will. Um, yep. She's who I'm closest with. That That alliance that I was in of seven, even including Dave, like I would call five of that seven some of my closest friends in the whole entire world. And you know, Phoebe and I are very different. Phoebe is quite a gentle soul. Um, she's quite spiritual, which I strive to be, but I'm not always the best at at times. Um, she's very, uh, I don't know what, reflective, I guess is the word. So I think I'm drawn to her because she's got a lot of uh, aspects and values that I don't necessarily have. And I think, you know, I aspire to be like her in a way. Um in saying that, yeah, to say I was friends with everyone would be a massive, massive stretch. But, you know, we saw my tribe. There was a very clear divide right down the middle from day one, essentially. Yeah. So, you know, and that first vote that came out, it they showed no strategy from the bottom half as to why they picked my name. And that's, I think, partially because... There wasn't one. I was just disliked. I was disliked by probably three people and someone went with my name because of that. I don't think there was really any strategy at all. It was more just a bit of um, once once your name was thrown out there, it was the beginning of the end. For sure. All righty. So there's obvious, as we said before, there's um, about an hour that goes to, to the screens each night or an hour and a half, depending on the night. But is there a survivor memory that you have that's either like the funniest memory the fondest memory something that didn't make it to the screen that you look back on and you cherish um there's so it's a lot of the mundane stuff where a lot of it doesn't stick out to me you know like a blinding light and go oh that was my pinnacle best survivor moment but you know I was thinking the other day when we won uh in season four I won a spa. Well, I got to go along to a spa reward and it was Janine, Pia, Simon Black and myself. And Simon and I, I stayed up that night 
you know, in these fluffy robes, looking at the stars, sitting on couches, on on a beach in Fiji, just talking about our lives. And I think I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity that I had to connect with people that I wouldn't have come across in my everyday life. Like how many times do you get to say, oh, yep, I sat in a spa with Simon Black and talked about all these crazy youth days. Like you, you don't, not everyone can say that they've had that opportunity. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm really, it is the littler things that didn't make the, the cut that I, I cherish more, I think. Yes, it was mm, good to win. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I loved winning challenges and I loved having that victory, but it was kind of the smaller stuff and the, the jokes um, on the beach that never made it to air. We used to have this, we used to have this, um, I don't know what it was, I guess it was a lesson where Matt, Matt used to teach Baden how to be a bad boy and it was just so funny to be a fly on the wall and their dynamic was so interesting and Sean and I used to cack up laughing all the time because they're polar opposites. They're totally different people and I think, that's also another beautiful thing about the survivor experience is you do get such an eclectic bunch of people that would have never come across each other in their everyday lives and they have to socialize they're not given a choice and to see the relationships and friendships that come from that is so interesting so yeah I definitely think stuff like that is is what I cherish most and when you said that, it sort of just clicked with me. Like, obviously, you've got the game front and centre, but when you strip it back and say you win a challenge to go to a spa, you're sitting with someone that you've just become close mates with in a spa in Fiji, the sort of holiday that people would pay thousands of dollars for. Like, I know you're not there for a holiday, but there's probably times where you sit back and go, geez, I'm so lucky to be in this position. Oh, for sure. And But you you're so lucky to be picked even mm. to play the game because I mean 20 something like 20,000 people apply and so when especially when you break it down for seasons like champions versus contenders where the champions are sought out they're they're contacted through agents you know channel 10 and Endemol Shine the production company go and find those 12 people they don't apply for the show so then us 12 motley crew that have applied out of tw- 20,000 it's already such an honor but yes you are grateful for that spa and you know how much people would pay to have that experience but at the same time you've certainly battled to get it yeah no 100% now I did some digging um I've reached out to a few fellow survivor crew um and there's a few few stories that I want to get some insight on because when I when I found out about him, I was genuinely in tears of laughter. Now, firstly, apparently um, in season four, someone had to have a chat to you for uh, I guess we could call them disciplinary reasons. Um, there was something you were doing, or should I say, something you were doing too much of that landed you in a bit of hot water. Oh, Do you know what I'm speaking about here? Yeah, swearing probably. <laughs> no, more to do with the uh, the food situation. Oh, is this the pot scraping? <laughs> oh, my God. I'd love to know who gave you this little tidbit. Um, yeah. Oh, I didn't have a dis. No one actually ever pulled me up on it. That's the funny thing is, like, it would get to – I was the camp cook for 
my major- the majority of the time I played. So when we got to the end of the pot of rice, we'd scrape the burnt bits off the bottom. And Baden used to do it too. Sean used to do it too. Like it was definitely not just me, despite whoever this mole is saying it was. Um, I like, yes, I, I became very protective over it because you were so hungry. And that's like, that's if that is going to give you some sort of enjoyment and, you know, like taste, I don't know. I don't know. But it, it, you become a little bit fixated on it. After I was voted out, I heard that Baden, it just turned into Baden's absolute thing. Like he, you could not go near the pot without Baden's permission. So I think, you know, there are a few of us that carried that torch. What about we move on to the next one, your performance in the dining room in Jury Villa? Oh, I was, everyone was really disappointed with me. With That's not what I've been told. Really? I yeah. remember getting in there and David was like, I don't understand why you're not eating so much food. And I, I could hardly, because you're so busy talking about the game and why you got voted out. I actually didn't really tuck into that much. But what I did tuck into, I got really sick really quickly. Because <laughs> um, a good old Johnny boy told me oh that he God. thought you were the first person that would have left uh, it would have left Survivor way more than what you did when you came into it. Uh, well, I actually did. That's not a lie. That's not a lie. So um, when at the end of Jury Villa, so that first feast, I I didn't eat a lot. But after that, I certainly made up for it. And I weighed more when I got on the plane to come home than I did when I first started the game. It was only about a kilo more, but it was more. That's got to be that's got to be the first person in history for that to happen. That's a, that is a good effort. Well, I was in um, there for nine days, and you've got yeah, to remember, true. I was in there at the start. I was in there with three boys, so Sean, David, John, and then after me was Simon. So I was in there with four boys. I was eating at the rate four boys were, and it kind of. I had a light bulb moment one day that I went, I can't be eating like this. I am not their size. I do not have their output energy wise and um, I tried to slow down but it's so hard after I'm gonna say bugger that treat yourself go hard oh for sure and I certainly did all righty now the last one I want to get to the bottom of is what's the toilet set up on the island and what would happen if someone didn't make it to that toilet in time oh I can I can tell you a good story about that John's probably already told you and he's probably he told me he told me to ask you yeah which it wasn't me so what happened um we had an area where we went to the toilet and for the first week or so on season four there was no moon so you couldn't see your way down the path to get to that area and one morning I woke up at daybreak I must have been the first person to go and on the path there was this massive like puddle is the only way I can describe it of shit. Like someone had just got their pants down to get this bad boy out. It was so disgusting and it was it was huge. Like I couldn't believe that it had come out of a human being. Anyway, so I kicked dirt over it and kicked leaves over it and I told Matt about it and Matt said, oh, we've got to get to the bottom of it. We've got to find out who it is. So we waited until that evening until all – 11 or 12 of us, however many there were at that point, were around the fire and we could see everyone's facial reactions. And I told this story and we wanted to see who reacted, but everyone had a really good poker face. No one let anything slip. So Matt 
went on this rampage trying to find out if it was Baden for like a week. Turns out it wasn't Baden. We do know who did it now because I think a producer actually got it on tape. But uh, oh, that that won't be revealed. But um, no. yeah, a producer had to walk in one day and say and give us a warning and say, guys. A cameraman stood in your shit last night. Clean it. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, no wonder John had a good laugh about this when he sent it through. Because oh. when I read that, I was like, "That is cold." It is. That's it is a it. really good story, but it's very unfortunate for the person that it happened to. Um, alrighty, Johnny boy. Thanks for filling in with those. They were they were good gems. Um, Screw you, John. <laughs> Besides going on Survivor again, if you had to pick one game show to be a part of, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, look, if I was single, I would I would definitely do The Bachelorette as long as yep. I was The Bachelorette and there were 24. I don't think I could do it the other way around where I was one of 24 and was a contestant. Mm. Um that's not relevant to me right now, so can wipe that off the list. Um, oh, there's a show, actually, that is probably, I like the idea of Ninja Warrior, but physically I don't think it's something I could do. Like I really enjoy watching it, but I don't think I could hack it. Yeah, um, I understand. That's the same with me. I, I wouldn't make it past the first jump. Yeah, yeah. There's a show um, on MTV called The Challenge, which is really cool. So it's a bit of a mix of like Survivor, Ninja Warrior, Jersey Shore. Like, so it's relationships, challenges, you know, it's got a bit of everything to it. That really intrigues me. Um, I think they're up to like season 35 or something at the moment. Jesus, they're going hard on yeah. the production. Yeah, yeah. And they, they get people ex- reality tv people go on it so they get people from like jersey shore and geordie shore and survivor and big brother and stuff to actually compete on that so i think oh that's it yeah if i ever did another one that would probably be the one i would do yeah no well said i i, I could have seen you doing um the amazing race we talked about it john and i talked about it but i think he's keener to go on it with lee now I oh, you've been dropped. I've been dropped so quickly, like a bunny hot potato. But um, I think I would also do, actually, scrap all those. I would do the block in a heartbeat. Oh, I would do yeah. the block if you yep. asked me to. Um, but, yeah, I think I'd need to find someone I was suited with to actually renovate. Cause it's, that's, it's stressful. While you get, like, a bed and a shower and food, they work around the clock and it looks like um, it's pretty taxing on them. Yeah, that does look intense. Like I couldn't bloody tell a hammer apart from a nail, so I'd be shocking to go on that show. <laughs> yeah, but everyone thinks they're a good renovator until the time comes. and then Until the like, time comes, yeah, exactly. Hang on a second. Um, all righty. So as much as I'd love to sit here and just chat rubbish about all good things Survivor, I want to move on to some of the more serious topics we've got lined up for today. Um, People probably get bored of me saying this, but of course the show is all, all about exploring mental health and um, you've got a really unique experience and I guess perspective on it and I think that people will really be interested to hear it. Um, would you be comfortable talking about where your mental health journey kicks off? For sure, absolutely. Um, so my life, I've had a pretty unique life and I, I can say that there's not a lot of people my age that have kind of had the upbringing I've had. So I was born 
I was born in Brisbane, but uh, my mum is from Brisbane and my dad is from a cattle station in southwest Queensland near a town called Quilpie. The property has been in my family for over 100 years, so it's a bit of a legacy. You know, my great-grandfather bought it and so on and so forth. It's been bought down or passed down the generations. So my mum... married my dad we moved out we lived out there Um, I have a younger brother who's very close in age to me he's I think we're 15 months difference Um, and we're an hour and a half from the closest local town so schooling options you either have the option to do school of the air so essentially your parents or your mother teaches you over a radio which it was dare I say back in my day or (laughs) over a phone Um, and the second option is which doesn't happen very often anymore, is you go to boarding school for grade one. So you start your schooling life um, in grade one. So that's what I did. So my brother and I went to a a convent run by two Catholic nuns. It it sounds like something from the olden days, but this is the year 2000. So this sounds like something that I'd hear like, Early 1900s or something. Yeah, yeah. So they they were they are still around, but they're just very few and far between. So yeah, I went to boarding school um, then. That's what everyone has done in my family because we've always lived so remotely. Um, and I struggled. I really struggled. I wasn't the kid that had a lot of friends. Um, I always had my head in a book. I wasn't the sportiest kid going uh, which was is quite highly valued in country towns I find is if your kid's athletic then they're kind of the pin it's like those small town movies that you see with people and like their their gridiron and stuff it's 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 like that I do believe it's like that in regional Australia too so where where that boarding school was was in a town of 450 people so there wasn't a lot of recreational stuff on offer so you either played rugby league or you danced. So I danced. I wasn't very good at it. Um, Yeah, all the girls were really good at riding horses. I wasn't. So I was always kind of on the outer a bit, Um, but I always was pretty switched on. I was like mum used to call me a clever kid. I don't know whether that's true or not now. But, um, yeah, so when it came time to end my primary schooling, I went away to an intermediate boarding school for a year for grade seven. Um, And I went from being in a school of 28 kids and being one of eight boarders to being in a school where there was 125 kids in my grade. And I think 80 or 90 of them were boarders. And that was just in my year group, not to mention the whole rest of the school. So I went from being a big fish in a very little pond to a little fish in a very big pond. Um, And it was much the same. I struggled. I never had a massive group of friends. I always had one or two. But, you know, I I was bullied um, a lot growing up because I was so different in a way. And it was just because I had different priorities. Like a lot of, again, lots of country kids are just so involved in sport and that just wasn't me. It wasn't something I was good at. Um, So then for high school, I went away. I came to Brisbane for boarding school, which is, again, what most country kids do. They go away for secondary schooling. Um, Yeah, and I had had friends. Um, it It wasn't as tough as I found primary, but 
it wasn't school wasn't something I enjoyed I never found like my click if you will and I never had a really really close group of friends that I could rely on no matter what so I was always a little bit lost socially I found um uh yeah so then on my property where we grew up I was very close with my grandparents because they lived there too and in my last year of school my grandfather died and that took a really big hit on me because he was like a father to me I spent as much time with him pretty much as I have my dad in my life so yeah it took a real toll um whether that was the trigger moment event I'm not sure but I I then suffered from depression for probably a good 12 months after that um I struggled to get out of bed in the morning I was really lost with what I wanted to do when I finished school. My weight fluctuated, you know, like a yo-yo and it wasn't, it wasn't a good time for me. And it's hard to be, have depression when you're at a boarding school because you don't have time where you can just shut the door and be alone. Like you are always in a dormitory, you are eating together you are playing together, you're going to school together, like you are with these people 24-7. So there's not a lot of privacy and I, I really battled with that because whilst you may think that's a good thing because you could go through it with people together, I didn't really feel like at the time I had people that I could go through it with. So um, my mum pushed me to seek help and I did and yeah, I, I recovered from it. Um, my outlook on life changed and I saw light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. So, yeah, it was, yeah, it's hard. I think, I think everyone goes through some sort of depression or mental illness at some point in their life. And to say you don't, I think you, that's not necessarily that you don't. It may just be that you haven't realised that you have. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was another one. Um, and then, yeah, a few years passed and I suffered from it again. It was the same kind of situation. I didn't really feel, feel like I had a close group of mates that I could rely on. Yeah, it took a lot longer the second time round, and nothing seemed to be changing. So I decided to pack my bag and move overseas thinking that was going to solve everything. Like the 19-year-old mm. naive, naive girl I was and I got there and realized I was still depressed despite being in one of the most beautiful places in the world I couldn't seem to see the positivity in things and it's really sad because I look back on my time overseas and while I did have a good time it, it feels like there's this big shadow over the top of it of how I was feeling so yeah it, it again it's tough I think that yeah it was tough um one of the things that you touched on a lot was that support network. And as you said, like that is so important when you're going through this sort of stuff. Do you think that like, obviously you, you touched on the environment that you grew up in rural Queensland, like it's hard enough going through this as a city boy, but in rural Queensland, I'm imagining that access to facilities or even just, I guess the perception would have been very different to what it is for someone in my position. Did that make it harder? being in that environment absolutely and I also I also think there's a real stigma 
around country people and mental illness, we're quite stubborn and we don't like to ask for help. So, and you see that there's a lot of campaigns going at the moment, like the black dog, uh, trying to encourage, especially rural people, rural men in particular, that it, it, it isn't weak to speak out and to ask for help. So I was kind of raised that, you know, you just pick yourself up and you get on with it. And it's not, it's not something that you have to ponder on. But, yeah, I, I, it wasn't even a thing. I didn't learn about mental health growing up. I think a lot of people didn't. I think it's only really become prominent kind of in the past 10 years or so. So, yeah, yes, in answer to your question, yeah, it is. It, there isn't the services out there. It, they've gotten way better, don't get me wrong. I mean, you can see a psychologist in where I grew up now. It's not every week, but there is one that comes out rotationally. Yep. Well, I think things have definitely improved, uh, but there's still definitely a long way to go. I also think that with technology now, we are, we're quite spoiled that you can have like a Skype session with a psychologist or something like that and live remotely and the internet's come so far. So yes, it's a very different landscape from what I grew up with, but I still think more progression can be made. Yeah, no, well said. Um, And since that period of time, um, you've had some other battles going on. You've been extremely open and honest about in particular your battle with, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, endometriosis, I think is the pronunciation. That's right. Um, But it it wasn't until, like, it, it wasn't until uncovering your story that I'd even heard of the condition itself. Um, do you think there's a lack of understanding surrounding the condition? And in saying that, do you think that that sort of contributes to a stigma that surrounds it? For sure. I, I definitely think so. I mean, one in 10 women suffer from it. And, you know, the fact that you didn't even know what it was, it just goes to show that there isn't, it isn't widely spoken about. And I think a lot of reproductive issues aren't widely spoken about because no pun intended, they aren't sexy. It's not yeah. like, oh, I broke my femur. How, you know, how daring of me. What a, what a badass I am that I broke a bone or yeah. something like that. When, it, when, you, when you're talking about people's anatomy, people go, oh, I don't want to talk about that. That's, they shy away from it. Yeah, that's, that's vetoed and, you know, it's something. And because it's also with diseases that you can't see as well, not just necessarily endo, but even mental health is a good example of it. Any mental issues you may have, because you can't see it, it's, some people really struggle to empathise with it because they can't, they can't physically see it, so they just think, oh, well, nothing's wrong with them. So for those listening that don't know, endometriosis is the condition where the tissue that's meant to grow inside of your uterus grows outside of it. So whilst it's not cancer, it's, it, it grows in a similar way. It's very sporadic. It can appear pretty much anywhere. They don't know the cause. They don't know why people get it. Um, and it just happens. And at the moment, there is no cure. So there are a lot of preventative measures where you can get it cut or lasered out. But most of the time, it grows back. There's a lot of myths that having a baby can then rid you of the symptoms. That's also not been proven. So essentially, it's, 
yeah, it's it's a disease that we have no cure to. It appears out of nowhere and it pretty much turns your world upside down. Is it true that a diagnosis can take up to 10 years? Because when I read that, that shocked me. Like that's a long time for someone to be living with something that they don't know what they're going through. Yeah, so I think the average at the moment to be diagnosed is six years. Um, it took yep. me 10 years, so it took me from the time when I was in high school, actually coro- this all correlates, it's funny when you start talking about it, how it all fits in, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but when I was having those mental struggles, I was struggling with this too. So there were points where... I remember one pinnacle story for me that really sticks out was I was 14 at the time and I was meeting up with this boy that I liked in in the city to hang out with him for the day. So I caught the bus in, him and I walked to Botanical Gardens, um, spent the day together, we were sitting under a tree um, and we went to leave and I was wearing a black pair of tights with some black sandals and I stood up and something felt wrong and I couldn't figure out what was wrong or why I felt that way. And then I looked down at my feet and I had lost so much blood that in a 10 second period, there was blood on my ankles. So you're you're internally bleeding. That's essentially what I had um, at the time. And I then had to walk behind this boy for a kilometre to go back to then get on public transport to get home, back to boarding school to clean myself up essentially. So it's, you know, it's it's crazy, these horrific stories. And that's that's just one which is, you know, it's more an exterior thing. When you start talking about like pain flare-ups people have had and situations they've had them, it's even crazier. Like I remember one day I used to walk home from work every every afternoon Um, and just before I was about to go on Survivor I was walking home one day and I just it felt like I'd been hit by a bus like I I crippled down in pain and was laying on a patch of grass out the front of Suncorp Stadium for 45 minutes just waiting for this pain to pass because I didn't have any painkillers on me I was 400 metres from my house, so I couldn't, it felt stupid calling anyone to ask them to come and pick me up because I could literally throw a rock at it from where I was. But I couldn't move. You are paralysed from the amount of pain. And unfortunately, the amount of endo you have isn't relative to the amount of pain you have. The position it's in isn't relative. So there's just so many if, but, maybes, and you just never know when you're going to get a flare up. And as you said, like, because someone can't physically see, like in your case where you're bent over for 45 minutes and you're crippled with pain, yeah. someone can't see that you've got like a dislocated shoulder or something and they're going to walk past and think, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, this chick's crazy. Why is she yeah. helping writhing on the ground holding her stomach? Like it's it's nuts. It is absolutely nuts. And it's also cr- quite tricky in the dating world too because – you know, you go into a situation and want to be intimate with someone, but you think, oh, shit, I might lose three cups of blood here out of nowhere. Mm. Like, how are they going to deal with this? They're going to think there's been like a massacre in here. So, you know, it's, it is, it's hard and it, it's hard. It, it impacts it, so many different, 
like party a lot. So many different, and then the mental side of it too, tying back to that. Like I was, I after high school, I became quite a, a physical, active person. I enjoyed my activity. I enjoyed my training. I enjoyed, you know, being in the outdoors. Something kind of just flipped a switch in me. And um, I could never trust that I could go out and do something without having this as a setback or without having this stopping me. And there's nothing you can really do to prepare for it because it's so sporadic. Like, and I still go on walks where I'll have stuff like this happen and it's it's just seems to be never-ending. Yeah. And on that, like, on that note, you've obviously you had your initial battle with depression, then it flared up again, then you overcame that the second time. Was it, how hard was it after you got a diagnosis at such a relatively late age, like compared to when you can get diagnosed with a range of other conditions? You haven't had that period of time as a kid to adjust um, to living with not only the condition, but the diagnosis itself. How did being diagnosed at that age impact your mental health considering that you'd already had those two battles prior yeah I I became really frustrated I became frustrated because doctors weren't listening to me and I felt like I was banging my head against a brick wall I was going back over and over again saying no you need to listen something is wrong here and I can't whilst I'm not in pain now I may be in pain later so I need you to look at this Mm -hmm. Um, I had a really supportive partner at the time who helped me through it my mum has been amazing through it all I had a really good group of girlfriends which stuck by me through it Um, you know I've had three laparoscopies now in in three years for this so I've been really lucky that I have had the support network now but I became I became frustrated and but most of all I became anxious because I wasn't I and it felt like I didn't know when I was going to get an answer and I didn't know when the pain was going to come so how could I plan my life when and even just plan my day when I didn't know if I was going to be able later in the day so yeah yeah it was it was tricky um it was definitely tricky. Even now I have, I have a lot of, I, f- I have lots of bouts of anxiety with it because it, it, it is something that I just can't control. Yeah, it's something that's so, yeah, it's, there's literally nothing you can really do that will stop it coming on. Yeah, it's insane. It is. Um, and the other thing was I was going, I went into one particular doctor that, I told her, I said, I think I've got endometriosis and she laughed at me and I said, and I said, why are you laughing? She said, because I can tell you don't have endo just by looking at you. Now, the only clinical way to diagnose endometriosis at the moment is with a laparoscopy. They physically have to cut you open to check if it's in there. It doesn't always appear on ultrasounds um, and it, it isn't visible to the naked eye. So I think there needs to be a lot of doctor on training too because um, it is a disease that's really only come to light in the past kind of two decades. Yeah, and if that doctor's listening, they can go fuck themselves because yeah. that's, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's shocking. Yeah, I can still remember her name. Isn't that funny? It's always the one oh. you don't want to remember that you can. I, I hate it. I, <laughs> I haven't met her, but I know she's a, she's a nasty piece of work. She's a um, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> on the... 
on the topic um, of like mental health and whatnot, I was doing some research about it. As I said, I'd never heard of it. I'd never come across it. And I stumbled across a study done by, I think it was like Monash Uni or one of the unis down here in um, Melbourne. And they found that women with endo reported um, really poor um, self-well-being, mental well-being, worse than not only the general population, um, but also on par with other chronic conditions like HIV. As someone who continues to go through like a battle with endo, why do you think there's such a big link between the condition itself and poor mental well-being? I think what I touched on again, that anxiety of not being even able, even able, sorry, to plan your day, knowing whether you are going to be able later on. And it's, it's tough because it's not just the big things that you miss out on, like things that you can't physically do. It's the little stuff. It's the nights out where you thought you were going to be totally fine and you've had to leave. If you even get there, you have to leave at 10 o'clock because you feel too sick or, you know, and it's the, all the stuff that you miss out on that you always feel like you're a step behind. And I, re, I try and not have that mentality. I just think, you know, this is the card I've been dealt and there's got to be other ways to manage it. But because, yeah, for a long time, it wasn't even recognised as a disease. So I think a lot of women also really struggle with that because it was like, not what we, we weren't being noticed, but we weren't being acknowledged, like that this, mm. this pain was real. And I think there was even a study done showing that the pain that sometimes that you can feel from endo is on par to that of labour. So if you put that in perspective, I think, you know, when you're going through that sometimes on a day's, daily basis, it's taxing. It's really mentally yeah. taxing. And you feel like and you're so constantly letting people down too because, you know, there's things you can't go to or can't do or, you know, you're not always 100% your best self because, uh, because of this disease. And one of the symptoms is also fatigue as well. So there are days where I feel 100% and I could run a marathon if I wanted to. And there are days when I physically can't get out of bed and not being able to then predict those days it's yeah it's annoying yeah far out I just can't even imagine beginning to live with that and you hear stories of obviously how bad labor is and I know it's well I don't know but I, I can <laughs> tell that it's not not something fun to go through no. but when you think about it labor might happen every few years if you have a couple of kids if you've got endo and you're getting those pains that's every well that can be every second day yeah. So, yep. yeah, that's just insane. Um, from that study that I just talked about, it said that nearly 70% of the women felt that they needed more um, social and psychological support after their initial diagnosis. Um, besides, obviously, you said your mum was a massive support for you. Who did you look to to try and overcome some of the mental health concerns that you had? And did you have trouble just communicating what endo was to friends? Uh, yes, initially I did, but I do have a very good group of girlfriends that have, have been very, not understanding, but have been, uh, quite proactive in doing their own research to understand what I'm going through. My yep. best friend is a dietitian, and so she was already in the health space. So she, you know, is very understanding about what is going on with me like I said, at the time when I was initially diagnosed, I had a partner that was very supportive and 
again, he did his own research to understand what I was going through. So people in my really close circle, uh, I've been able to turn to because because they have been also proactive in, in their understanding. I had people on my outer circle that I, I ended up losing from my life or cutting from my life because they weren't as understanding and it wasn't, it wasn't that they just didn't understand, it was purely they didn't want to and they just treated it as a taboo topic and I kind of went, well, you're, you aren't going to really fit into my life anymore if yeah. you can't even acknowledge that I'm sick. So they're not worth keeping around. No, that's that's right. And you I think quality over quantity, it's nice to have a hundred friends, but it's nicer to have five really good ones. Mm. Um I also think when you are initially diagnosed, there needs to be a healthcare plan put in place, like the mental health plan that you can get from a GP, um, that offers you that that support with it because when you're diagnosed, you wake up from surgery, you're a little bit out of it, they tell you you've got it and then it's like, well, what what to from here? Like they give you, yeah. they, don't, they don't give you an eating plan, they give you like a surgery recovery on when you can be active but, you know, it is very self-led at the moment in doing your own research, figuring out what anti-inflammatory foods are, when you should eat them, how you should eat them, in what form you should eat them what mode of exercise is going to be best for you. And it is a lot of research because there isn't one best way at the moment. There isn't, we haven't figured out what the best path is to treat it and to live with it. Far out. The more you talk about it, the more, yeah, I'm just floored by it. It is, there are so many things that um, are going on at once. Like you've got not only the physical battle that you've got going on, but then the associated mental battles that, you've got to fight as a result of that it's yeah it's buddy it's insane it um, is it is insane and it's it's insane I was and don't get me wrong I was one of the non-believers too I remember hearing once about chronic well, the first time I heard about chronic fatigue I remember just thinking oh they're just tired <laughs> and yeah now I have I have a disease where fatigue is one of the symptoms I curse myself and think this isn't just tired Daisy you're, you're like I regret ever saying that yeah exactly exactly um and then I suppose in the past 12 months kind of leading on to a different topic now but mentally has been it's been a whole a whole different ball game again so once you're kind of thrust into the media and mm. you're in the public eye you're in people's living rooms three nights a week it's a totally it's a totally different game again so that kind of moved my mental my mental focus away from my endo if you will into more how I was being perceived and whether you like it or not people have an opinion and unfortunately while social media can be a great creative tool it can also be a really detrimental one and anyone can get on their soapbox now and say what they think of you what they feel about you and not only can they tell it to the world they can tell it directly to you yeah and when you're like in a position in Survivor, for example, when you're um, going on there because you're a fan of Survivor, you love the game, one of the byproducts of that that you don't sign up to, as you say, is someone saying, oh, Daisy, you're this, you're that, um, you don't deserve this. Um, when that's playing out, yeah, three or four times a week, 
I'm tipping that that's not a fun time to be on social media. No, it, it's not. And while it, whilst there are a lot of good things and good people really encouraging you and telling you to keep going, which is kind of ironic considering it's already been filmed, there was, there was one week in there, in season four, it was very evident I had a very close friendship with Sean and that's what it was. It was a friendship. It was nothing more than that. And, but I think the world just loved to perceive a single young girl as and a fr when they have a friendship with a, a married man as she's a predator. She's, yep. you know, she's out to get him. She's got her dirty little mitts on him. And there was two, there was a two week period there where they kind of started to show Sean and I's friendship where I got a death threat minimum one every day so <sighs> I would wake up in the morning and people say oh don't read the comments don't read the comments I've done both I've tried both methods now where I've read everything and read nothing I haven't found one more helpful than the other but what a lot of people don't also realize is a lot of these things that are being said aren't being said online they're being sent in direct messages to you so and I think a really tricky one is Twitter because it's not regulated in any way. You can get on there and say whatever you want and it virtually can't be taken down. Like whilst you have a character limit, it, it doesn't take many words to say something nasty. So, yeah, I went through a really tough time last year when season four was on TV because, because of that. And it's hard because no one knows what you're going through. I didn't have any female tribe mates left at that stage in the game and it's not something it's not exactly something you can reach out to someone one of the boys and say oh hey I'm getting death threats because I was oh don't worry about it that's their mentality so yeah. yeah it's tough it's tough and you know I really started questioning my self-worth and what I'd done to make people behave towards me like that. And I went back and was re-watching episodes. And I think the the worst, and whether it be the best or the worst, I think one day I said, oh, yeah, Sean and I have a connection out here. And to this day I still don't think that was a poor choice of words because we did. We had a friendship connection and that's what it was. So, you know, for people to then jump on that and do what they did it's just inhumane and I just think there needs to be more policing around social media and around what people can say to others because had I not be, been as mentally fit as I was at the time, I probably would have really struggled with it. Yeah, I think like for some reason there's a perception that people in the public forum, whether it's in your position on TV or an athlete, whatever it may be, it's almost as if there's this idea that, okay, well, they're in that position, they're putting themselves out there, which gives me the right to comment whatever and, I want. It's free yeah, for all. Yeah. And like, like I don't know. They if know you, what they signed up for kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know um, if you follow the footy up there in Brisbane. I remember Dane Beams put up a story where some, someone messaged him and they literally were just like, I don't even want to repeat it, but they said something that was just so vile. And you just think, when would you ever in any other situation speak like that? that. To, you wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't, a, you wouldn't a, say you it wouldn't. to someone in the street, so why should you say it behind a screen? Exactly. 
and I think, yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Like I, I remember one day I had someone message me and if you want to edit this out because it's too whatever you can, but they told me they were going to find out where I live. They messaged me and they said, I'm going to find out where you live. I'm going to cut up your slutty little face into a thousand pieces and then I'm going to re-put it together and hang it on the back of my car. And I remember what? thinking, what the fuck? And it's, it's never... It's never someone's real account. It's always a fake name with a dog or a cartoon. Like it's always someone hiding behind something else. Like it's just, it's insane. And the, these people are mentally unwell too. But I also think like where, where do we draw the line at making excuses for this bullshit? Yeah, that's fucked. Jesus, that is not what you, yeah, you wake up one morning, you see that. And that's your oh, day. Yeah. That's your day then. Yeah. That's your day gone. Like that's all you can think about. And, you know, I, I when I was going through my stage of not reading anything, I had a day off for something and my friend messaged me and said, um, just want to check how you're doing today. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. What? And I, I said, why is something, is everything okay? Are you okay? And she said, oh, yep, I'm fine. I just, um, the girls and I were just reading this article. And of course I hadn't even seen the article and I probably wouldn't have seen it had, mm. had I continued my day, but I did get that phone call and the Daily Mail had pretty much put, a, put together a compilation of tweets that people had written about me and had just put it into an article about how disliked I was. And I think, oh, I just think, Trash journalism, that's exactly what it is. Like it's clickbait and yep. people, it's, you know, unless it's, it's, it's a clickbait for a positive reason, I don't think these people realise the impact it has on the individuals that it's written about. Yeah, as you said, I think there needs to be a whole lot more policing done on that side of things and I think it needs to happen, yeah, pretty soon. Um, like with all of this going on, what are some of the the coping mechanisms you've adopted, whether it was through a therapist or something that you've just picked up on yourself, what are some of the coping mechanisms that you use um, on a daily basis that sort of help you fight um, your mental health deteriorating when you feel it going downhill? Is there anything that you implement that can combat that? Yeah, I move my body. I move my body every day. That's a non-negotiable for me, whether I feel motivated or not I discipline myself every single day to do some sort of physical activity where I feel good and it releases endorphins exercise is not about getting fit or the aesthetic for me anymore it's how it makes me feel mentally so that is that is always my go-to um I have also I have journaled for probably 18 months now. I've been a bit slack with it lately, but I find it a really good release to put down everything that I'm feeling and kind of, and as I'm writing, I have these epiphanies of why I'm feeling that way. Um, I had a stage last year where I was doing a lot of meditation. I've uh, and that was prior to going into the game. Again, I have I've been really slack with it lately, but it's something that when things are really bad, um, I do, I do turn to now. I should practice it more regularly, but you know, (laughs) sometimes it's hard to put aside, put aside the time, but it's always, yeah, those are the things. It's like, I always say that yoga is one of the things that 
like I'll do. Um, well, at least that's what I, I say I should do. But whether or not I actually do it is a completely different story. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, sometimes it's easier said than done. And, yeah. and I know people say, oh, you can make time. And absolutely you can make time, but sometimes we don't make ourselves the priority. So that yeah. time gets put elsewhere, whether that be doing something else, doing something for someone else, and we don't necessarily put ourselves first. Yeah. But, yeah, they're the – I also – I used to find talking about it really therapeutic, but the more I find, the more I talk, I, it's also, you got to remember, you've got to talk about your circle too. And when they've heard the same stuff over and over again, it becomes quite taxing on them. So yeah, I, whilst I do like to share it, I also think it's important to really write it down and break it down that way. Yep. Um, I guess the the note that I want to finish off on is there's a lot of people that are probably in a situation where because of the stigma, because of maybe a lack of education, whatever it may be, there's um, a period of unknown about um, like the mental health side of things. Is there something that you've personally learned along the way or even something that you'd recommend um, as a way of someone just promoting positive mental well-being like is there um a bit of advice that you would have for for someone in a position where they're just not sure back yourself back yourself a hundred percent and if you don't back yourself and you think that whatever you're about to say or do may have a negative consequence take a deep breath and have a have a real think about it because you know we there are so many times where we think i can't do this or i can't I can't is such an easy phrase to say because it's said so often. And I think it's really important to, you know, you can, you absolutely can. You're the only one that's stopping you. And the second, that well, there's probably three bits of advice. The second piece is you're not a tree. You're not stuck where you are. If you don't like your situation, change it. You're the only one that can change your situation for the better. I do strongly believe that. No one's going to, there's not a knight that's going to come in on their white horse and save the day for you. That's not how it works. My third one, um, which I still have to work on every single day, is don't get bitter, get better. So everything is either going to be a blessing or a lesson in your life. Sometimes it's both. And I think, you know, if you can walk away from a negative experience and say, not that's how that affected me. This has made me this way. Instead say, what have I learnt from this and what will I not do in the future to prevent this happening again? Yeah. Farah, don't, don't get, get bitter, get better. better. That is one of the greatest things I've ever heard. That gave me chills. I was like, that's unreal. Um, <laughs> Daisy, the tribe has well and truly spoken. <laughs> you are amazing. Uh, appreciate you being so open and honest about all of this. Um, I'm sure there are so many people who relate to something you've spoken about during this chat. I wish you nothing but the best. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been a good time. No, thank you. Thank you.